chaos is part of family life, isn't it? That's why we love having the children with us, because it reminds us and it brings us together as a family, and chaos is part of family life. Having had four kids and a whole bunch of grandkids now, I understand that. Well, we are in uh, day five, or uh, Sunday, fifth week of Lent, and uh, Lent is kind of wearing on. Lent is, um, we've had quite a bit of time immersed in focusing on Jesus' last hour on the cross, and uh, we've had time to reflect on many of his statements. We have a couple more to go after today, and um, this symbolizes uh, what life was like for him on the cross. By now, he's toward the end of his life. He's been on the cross for several hours. He's uh, weary. He's tired. He has uh, experienced shame, humiliation, insult, embarrassment, temptation. He could have stopped it at any time. And um, he's tired. He's been scourged, beaten. He's bleeding. He's been tortured, and his thirst would have been a part of that torture. That was designed into it. And, um, and then he says these words, I am thirsty, John 19. I am thirsty. We're looking at the seven last statements of Christ on the cross because each one of us tells us something. Each one of us communicates something to us about this wonderful Savior that we believe in. This is no different. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn to John 19. We're going to spend a little time in John 19. At one level, this reminds us of his humanity. Uh, he is like us in every way. In fact, that's one of our great, great faith statements. We have it in our own statement of faith, but that's one of the church creeds. Fully God, fully human, united in one body forever. And with this statement, he is thirsty we capture a glimpse of that humanity. He's tired. He's worn out. He's in pain. He's lonely. We mentioned last week that when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cried out uh, out of loneliness. Uh, this is the, we're talking the final moments of his life, a lonely, lonely time. And uh, he could have stopped it at any time, but he is faithful and he's committed to doing exactly what, um, what God asked him to do as father. So we see the humanity. That's pretty easy to capture that. I am thirsty. But underneath it, there's something else going on as well. Something really powerful, something wonderful. Last week we looked at Psalm 22. This week we're going to look at a different psalm. So underneath it, there's something else going on. Jesus knew, verse 28, that he had completed all that his father had sent him to do. Later, verse 28 says, knowing that everything had now been finished. What John does in this passage is he creates a word play. He uses one word three times. It's translated three different ways in your English, but he uses this word. And I want you to see the three words because it, it gives us a glimpse in something. Knowing that everything had now been completed. I'll use that word, completed. There's the first one. And so that the scriptures would be completed. There's the second word. Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, but the sponge, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is completed. There's the third use of the word. So knowing that everything had been completed, 
that scripture would have been would be completed and he said it is completed so there's something else going on here that this idea of three times in this very short couple of verses he emphasizes the word completion he's almost done he's almost done it's right at the end and he's completed what God asked him to do so let's talk about the relevance of thirst and how this fits into this idea of completion. There's a lot of complex things kind of going on throughout here. John, is, uh, he's wonderful in that throughout the gospel, he weaves all these ideas. They're just dancing through the gospel from beginning to end. And several of them, we find them kind of conclusion, concluding right here. Along with the statements, it's finished, it's completed. I've done what my father asked me to do. So we know that Jesus had in mind to fulfill the scripture because he says that in verse 28. So that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Well, not only is he really thirsty as a human, but he picked this particular time to say it to complete scripture, to fulfill scripture. That's the reason he said it right now at this point in time. So you could look at it this way. He's sending us a message. He's letting us know something and we have to figure out what it is. He understands that he has a role to play, and I am thirsty is something that fits within that role. So what does it mean to be thirsty? Well, we know from John uh, several things. We know that his hour has come. He said several times throughout here that uh, when my hour comes, in fact, that his very first uh, miracle in John 2, the turning of water into wine at Canaan, Cana, he says, um, my hour has not yet come, and yet we now know he's in that final hour. That final time in all of world history, if you could take all of world history, we're there, right at this hour. The hour when redemptive history is made. That hour when everything we know changes because of what Jesus is doing right here. He's aware that all the steps to get him to this point in his life are in the hands of his Father. All the way through the Gospel of John, Jesus indicates that uh, he's close to his father and he's close, he's going to complete his will. Everything he's doing is according to the will of the father. And so he's at that final act. By the way, do you feel that way in life? That everything you're doing has significance and purpose, completing the will of the father? You know, a good exercise I would urge you to do is from time to time, sit down and ask the question, when the time comes for you to go be with the Lord, um, if you could script your memorial service, what would you want people to say about you? What would you want them to say? Because you actually do have control over that. That's how you live your life. Do you want people to say you made a lot of money? Do you want people to say you were the best skier in Summit County? Do you want people to say, wow, what a faithful, faithful person. What is it you want them to say? You actually have control over that on how you live your life. So I think it's a worthwhile exercise. So John, Jesus indicates all the way through this gospel that he is uh, fulfilling the will of his father and he's close to, he's close to his father. So this, last, this statement right here, I am thirsty, is not accidental. He did it on purpose so that scripture would be fulfilled. Scripture would be completed. Acts 2, Peter, when he's standing up before the crowd at Pentecost, he argues in Acts 2 that this was part of God's predetermined plan. 
This was God's plan all along that this would happen. Jesus came to the earth knowing that, knowing that this was part of God's eternal plan. Did you know that your life is part of God's plan? Psalm 139, every day, every day is accounted for in your life. Every day. And we see Jesus living it out. So, and now, right here at this passage, his life and his purpose are coming to an end. He has faithfully completed the process. He did it. He did it. In two weeks at Easter, we're going to be jumping up and down celebrating. He is risen. He did it. He remembered his promise, his covenant. He did not forget us. But first, a couple of other things. Turn with me to John chapter 4. In John chapter 3 and 4, I have a very interesting two chapters. In John chapter 3, he's talking to Nicodemus. The, um, he calls him the teacher in Israel. One of the very highest, educated, highest ranked positions in the nation of Israel. This is where he has the conversation with him about you have to be born again. What does it look like to enter this kingdom, which we've heard about? You have to be born again. Then in John chapter 4, the very next passage, he's in Samaria talking to a Samaritan woman. And there, he's talking to a woman. Well, first of all, it's a woman. Sorry, women, but back then, that's a statement. That's Jewish men, especially teachers, didn't talk to women. They certainly didn't talk to Samaritan women. And if that's not enough, they certainly didn't talk to women who were promiscuous. So this woman has three strikes against her. She's a woman, she's Samaritan, and... Uh, She's not very faithful. And Jesus picks her to tell the truth about what true spiritual worship looks like. That's how we learn what worship in the Spirit is about, right here in John chapter 4, and he revealed it to this woman. But look in verse 13, right in the middle of the conversation. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. If you look back in verse 10, Jesus had said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would not have asked him. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? So Jesus says in verse 13, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. So this water is growing. It's a, it's a well. It's, it's splashing. It's, it's, it's getting us all wet. So he chooses this woman to reveal this truth. What an irony then that in John 19 that Jesus, the one who brings us this water that quenches all thirst, is the one that's thirsty. John's setting us up to grasp this. He really is human. He had to become thirsty in order to deliver this kind of wonderful water. This is a fulfillment of Scripture. That's what he says. In order to fulfill Scripture. We haven't gotten to what Scripture it is yet. We'll get there in a minute. His water quenches all thirst. We know from John chapter 7, if you turn over to John chapter 7, he talks about water, but here water is seen as a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. And this helps us unlock the, the use of water all throughout the Gospel of John. In John chapter 7, he's at the Festival of Booths, the Festival of Tabernacles. It's in Jerusalem. It's one of the great festivals that everybody had to gather for. It was where they, they call it Festival of Booths or Tabernacles because they moved out of their house into tents. It's 
kind of like a big camping uh, time, eight days long. And it was to remember God's faithfulness during the 40 years of wandering when they lived in tents. So they had one festival set aside just to remember God's faithfulness. The later rabbis tell us that this festival went on for eight days and there was dancing and singing and singing of the Psalms. It went on 24 hours a day. People, would, It was just a big party. That's what it was supposed to do to celebrate. We serve the one true living God who takes care of us. We can rest because God will care for us. He will watch out for us. At the end of that eight days, they did two things. The priests would light the candles to symbolize God's presence and glory with them through the 40 years. Remember the pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. God never left them alone. For 40 years, he was present. And that reminds us that God is present. Second thing the priest did, the high priest, is he would go down to the pool uh, and grab the water. And he'd come back to the temple like a libation or a sacrifice and throw the water across the floor to symbolize God cares for our physical needs. Because remember at uh, Moses struck the rock in the middle of the desert, there's no water, and God provided water everywhere they went. So the water flowed out of the desert because of this one true living God. So this festival for eight days was a big time of celebration to remember all that God had done during the 40 years of wandering. Right in the middle of that, in verse 37, chapter 7, uh, I didn't say this, but this is the time when the high priest would have thrown the water. I suspect Jesus stood up. Look at verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up and he shouted, said in a very loud voice, he shouted, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. All of that water up until that time and all of those ceremonies and all that memory, uh, I mean, all the times of remembering were there to get people to the point when they would come to Jesus. And Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And then he says something very similar to what he said to the Samaritan woman. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. This is that water that quenches all of our spiritual thirst. If you're a believer in Jesus, you already tasted it. It's a water that quenches your thirst, but creates thirst at the same time. It's a water that fulfills, but makes you hungry for more. Thirsty for more. I guess I should use the right metaphor. Makes you thirsty for more. You understand what I mean by that? You're reading a scripture. You have a moment with the Lord when you're just so drenched that you can't imagine that you'd ever doubt. And then you have another moment where you're wondering where he is and you're thirsty for more. That give and take that we go through. Here it is right here. Living water will flow from within them. Here's the key. Verse 39. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. So in John... Water is a metaphor for the Holy Spirit, the cleansing. Ezekiel 36, when the Spirit comes under the new covenant, it'll become, he'll, become, he'll come like cool, refreshing water who cleanses us. That's the language of Holy Spirit, and it's all the way throughout John. This raises a very interesting question, which we're not going to deal with this week, but we'll deal with it in a couple weeks. In John chapter 19, in verse 34, Verse 33, but when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. There it is. Is this metaphorical? Is John now tying up the loose end of blood and water? 
We'll come back to that. It could very well be that water is a symbol of the Spirit and blood is a symbol of the Passover lamb. And both of those come to fruition right here because John emphasizes Jesus as the Passover lamb. And so that's what happens. That's what he, when he punctures his side, that's what, how he describes it. We'll come back to that. But in this passage, in 19, he had to become thirsty in order to provide spirit-quenching thirst, to provide living water that springs up eternally within us. He had to become thirsty. Well, then John goes on a little bit further, and he mentions the hyssop plant in uh, verse 29. He's the only, only one of the four Gospels that mentions it. Verse 29, a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked the sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. This is probably an allusion, I think it is, to Jesus as the Passover lamb. The concept of Jesus' Passover lamb is prevalent throughout John. John mentions it nine times, the Passover. So as you journey through John, you get the movement of Jesus. He's journeying to this uh, Passover where he's going to assume his role as a Passover lamb. In fact, uh, we kind of have a conundrum here in John with the other Gospels, uh, something that we often give our students in seminary to wrestle with. In John, Jesus ate the Passover dinner with the disciples on Thursday evening before they executed and put him on the cross. So he eats the Passover dinner on Thursday evening. But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Passover dinner is on Friday evening. They want to take him off the cross so they can celebrate Passover as a nation. So why does John say Passover's on Thursday, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke say Passover's on Friday? You have to wait to Easter to hear that one. The key that, what I'm trying to point out is that throughout John, the Passover is emphasized, and Jesus, I believe, is, printed, is presented as the Passover lamb. So this hyssop branch becomes very important because in Exodus 12, verse 22, Hyssop was the plant that Moses uh, was commanded to use, the people were used, to put the blood on the doorpost. Remember the Passover when the uh, angel of death came and they were told to bring a little baby lamb into their family, into their home, and keep it for three days. Then they were to sacrifice it. So imagine taking a lamb into your home and um, keeping it for three days. I'm sure there's attachment to this. And then you're asked to sacrifice it in front of your family to really help you help the people of Israel grasp this is a true sacrifice. So they sacrificed the lamb and they took the blood and I put it on this hyssop plant and they wiped it on the doorposts. And the angel of death passed right over. So hyssop became important as part of the Passover. If you uh, want to follow me, I'm going to turn to Hebrews. This is uh, after all of this, looking backwards now. Hebrews chapter 9. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says about this in verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Isn't that wonderful? That's what communion is all about. This blood, this cup, is the new covenant in my blood. He's the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is enforced only when someone has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living, even though my children wish it would. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. 
When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of the calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop. There it is. And sprinkled the scroll in all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled the blood, both the tabernacle and everything used in the tabernacle and all of its ceremonies. It's like us taking blood and sprinkling the whole church. Everything up here, everything. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. So he highlights that Moses took the hyssop and he sprinkled everything, blood over everything, using this hyssop as part of the Passover and later on as part of the cleansing of the temple. So when Jesus, I think John mentions this on purpose, that they used hyssop when Jesus died to help us see. Remember, Jesus is making a statement, and John is making a statement for us to understand here. This is the true Passover lamb. Everything in that Passover history pointed to this moment right here when Jesus dies as the Passover lamb. More of that on Easter. So, hyssop was used for everything. Finally, Jesus makes reference to, um, I think, Psalm 69. Back in, I'm back in John 19 now. When he says, so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. I think that's why he chose that moment, so that he could fulfill scripture. Jesus is aware that he's fulfilling scripture, or John wouldn't have told us that. John uses Psalm 69 twice before in John. Now, I remember last week we looked at Psalm 22. Uh, for those of you that were here, and what it taught us about why would God forsake and what's the outcome of that. So John uses Psalm 69 for his platform to help us understand it. Uh, he uses it twice before in John chapter 2, verse 17, when he drove out the money changers. He talked about zeal for my house. Zeal for my house. He quotes Psalm 69, 9. And then in John 15, 25, uh, he explains that the world hated him, and therefore it's going to hate us. And he's going to send a comforter to give us courage and strength to walk the road with us, to, to, uh, um, to provoke the conscience of the people around us, to protect us, to be a comforter. All the words wrapped up in the coming of the Spirit. And he uses Psalm 69. So John is weaving Psalm 69 through his book, and he brings it to a conclusion here. And then finally, in verse 29, he says, A jar of wine vinegar was there. That word, wine vinegar, is the word that's used in Psalm 69. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. So I think John wants us to grasp that um, uh, Psalm 69 is one very good way to understand what Jesus is doing and why this thirst is so important. By the way, when we celebrate communion in just a little bit, uh, when you come up, don't be surprised because the juice that you drink will taste different than it normally does. It will be sour. It is not spoiled. It's intentional so that you can just get a glimpse and remember what Jesus went through on the cross. 
So when you come up, it'll taste a little different. Don't worry. It's good. So let's take a look at Psalm 69. This seems to be the one of the, I think the heart of his argument. And Psalm 69 will answer several questions for us because it explains what Jesus is doing. And then if we can understand that, it will explain us and something about our lives as well. The first 12 verses reveal, this is a Psalm of David, by the way, and it reveals uh, that David felt very despised at some point in his life. So listen to what it says. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters. The floods engulf me. I am a worm calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. This was one of the phrases that Jesus used. Many are my enemies without cause, those who seek to destroy me. I am forced to restore what I did not steal. You, God, know my folly. My guilt is not hidden from you. Lord, the Lord Almighty, and there's a, all caps, L-O-R-D, the one true living God. You, Lord, the one true living God, may those who hope in you not be disgraced because of me. What a great request. Don't let people be disgraced because of my life. Now remember, he's in the middle of this deep torment. God of Israel, may those who seek you not be put to shame because of me. For I endure scorn for your sake, and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my mother's children. For zeal for your house consumes me. There's a second one he quoted when he cleansed the temple. Zeal for your house consumes me, and the insults of those who insult you, they fall on me. When I weep and fast, I must endure scorn. When I put on sackcloth, people make sport of me. They laugh at me. Those who sit at the gate mock me, and I am the song of drunkards. They wrote beer-drinking songs around how much he was tormented and suffered. Now remember, when the king suffered and went through this, the people assumed that he was no longer anointed by God. So this is a strong embarrassment. Much like when Jesus died on the cross, the people assumed he wasn't really the Messiah because the Messiah is not going to die on the cross. But then look what happens. Starting in verse 13, David cries out for help. But I pray to you, Lord, in the time of your favor, in your great love, O God, answer me with your salvation. Rescue me from the mire, do not let me sink. Deliver me from those who hate me from the deep waters. Do not let the flood waters engulf me or the depths swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, out of the goodness of your love. You ever cried that? Where are you, O God? You've told me you love me. Let me hear it. Answer me, Lord, out of the goodness of your love. In your great mercy, turn to me. Do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. Come near and rescue me. Redeem me because of my foes. This cry to God assumes that he needs God's help, but it also assumes that God has not yet stepped in to deliver him, or he wouldn't be crying out, would he? This is another example of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's just a different way of expressing it. You ever felt alone, crying out for the Lord? Where are you, God? This is what David is going through. Then in verse 19, he returns to how despised he feels. You know how I am scorned, disgraced, and shamed. All my enemies are before you. Does this sound like Christ? 
Scorn has broken my heart and has left me helpless. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They put gall in my food. Here is the climax. We have gone so low in this torment, this suffering, this persecution. We've reached the bottom. They even put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. David is the king. That's how low he was. This is the low point in the psalm right here. Starting in verse 22, David begins to uh, wish for God's justice. May the table set before them become a snare. And, and he has lots of things to say about how he would like God to respond to protecting. Suffering is a part of our life, isn't it? It is, isn't it? Many of you have been through it, haven't you? Some form of suffering. It doesn't matter if your suffering is as powerful or as big as other people's. It's still suffering. God knows what you can take. Suffering is a part of life. We discussed this with Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, we came to the conclusion that the ultimate goal of our suffering, God giving distance to us, is that other people will come to know him. Well, look what happens here. This reference to thirst in John 19 is a statement, I believe, of being forsaken by God. I'm thirsty because he shouldn't have been thirsty. He's the king of the universe. He shouldn't have been thirsty. He's alone. He's at the end of his life. He's already just cried out, why have you forsaken me? And now he's thirsty. But he's doing it because of his great love. Look what happens back in the psalm. I mentioned Psalm 21 is the climax of David's suffering. Look where the psalm goes. Beginning in verse 30, David turns his anguish to praise, assuming that the Lord is going to honor everything he's requested. I will praise God's name in song and glorify him with thanksgiving. Psalm 6930. This will please the Lord more than an ox, more than a bull with its horns and hooves. In other words, more than sacrifice. The poor, ooh, ooh, here we are. A blessing to the nations. The poor will, be, will see and be glad. David understands that what he's going through as a leader in Israel, if he's faithful to the end, the Lord will respond and the poor will see it and be glad. You who seek God, may your hearts live. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise the captive people. And then here it is again. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and all that move in them. The entire earth will respond because of what happened. So when Jesus selected this one verse out of Psalm 69, these people would get it. Someday they would get it. John got it because when he went and wrote the Gospel of John 50, 60 years later, whatever it was, he tied it to Psalm 69. He understood the message. What Jesus is doing on the cross, it was intentional. And the, all the earth will praise him because of it one day. It's the same answer as what we saw with Psalm 22. So David's experience of pain in Psalm 69 becomes a prophetic model, a type, if you will, of his greater son, Christ what Christ is going to go through. Therefore, it becomes a model for us as well. Jesus made it clear that we would have tribulation. 
So his death is a model for not only how to handle tribulation, but how to understand it. So when you ask, why me, O oh God? That is the right question to ask. That's a very legitimate question. If you can figure that out, then you'll know what's going on. Psalm 22 and Psalm 69 lead us to the same place. Why me, O oh God? So, that I, so God says, I can reflect my glory through you and the people around you will come to know me. That's why. I know some of you are suffering right now. I, I happen to have been experiencing uh, a, more, a time of rest and peace in my life. Things are good. I've been through suffering. You, so, you know some of my story. And uh, for those of you that are suffering right now, I'm so deeply sorry that you have to go through that. I wish you didn't. But please, have confidence. The Lord is not wasting that time. If we do not know how to suffer well, we have nothing to say to a world that only understands tragedy, do we? Jesus handled suffering well. He did this intentionally, step by step. He completed the process on purpose, intentionally, with great faith, and he could have stopped it at any time, something we don't have that power, because of his love for us. So that, Psalm 69, all the earth will praise his name. So if you're going through suffering, have confidence. As Paul said, it is a momentary light affliction. It's deep and painful while you're in the middle of it. But when we all reach glory, we'll look back and smile at how short it was, how God's grace was present, and how he used it to attract people to turn to him. So Jesus' life, his death on the cross, I am thirsty is not just a simple phrase. It's a phrase that means something very significant. It's a phrase that captures some of the essence of the way we live life as well. Because uh, I'm thirsty a lot, to be honest with you. I long for the time when uh, I will be with him in glory. I had a psychologist tell me one day, I said, well, how do you know somebody's suicidal? And he said, do you ever wish life could, would end? Absolutely. He said, do you think you could pull the trigger? <laughs> Not on your life. And he goes, oh, then you're normal. Aren't there days where we just long to have it fixed? Everything that's broken, put to rights. Everything that's wrong, made right. That's what this I am thirsty is all about. Jesus is sending us a message by using Psalm 61. In the end, all the earth will praise God. So we get to be used by the Lord in the meantime to carry out that message. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. One of the things I love about everything we do here at church is that everything we do, God has assigned intentionality to it, assigned purpose. It's a wonderful thing, everything we do. Um, the offering is no different. He tells us in 2 Corinthians, that's an expression of the gospel. Thank you for expressing your belief in the gospel, this wonderful wonderful story of what the one true living God has done to rescue us and not forget us. So let me pray. Father, thank you for this offering that we are about to receive. Lord, what an honor that we have to, you give us resources to use and we use them to love people, to help people that are hurting and broken. Lord, to uh, help people in such a way that we do our little part to help the earth praise your name. Thank you, Lord, for making that possible. And Father, thank you for the people sitting here. They're the ones that are giving. Lord, I'm so proud of them. I love them so much. I pray that you would just bless them because of their generosity, because indeed they are generous. They're the ones that make it happen. We pray these things in your son's name, Jesus. Amen.